Hello, and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Karis Ellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. And today, at long last... At last. Long last. We are diving back into Have His Carcass. <laughs> Yay! Yay! We're, we're back! Um, we are attempting <laughs> to be back. Yes, we're getting back onto a schedule. We've kept the corpse on ice this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Much good it did him. So, yeah, so in our, our last real episode, uh, before our unplanned hiatus, we hadn't gotten very far into the book. We had only kind of summarized the first three chapters and, you know, explored a couple of tangential ideas, <laughs> uh, which is my way of saying that we went off on several rabbit trails. Well, yes, I, I would say it was very metafictional of us because... Harriet is sort of forced to go down several unsatisfactory <laughs> trails in search of a, a telephone for the police. That's true. Let's pretend that was deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we'll be able to convince the listeners, but sure, sure, we did it on purpose. <laughs> but today we'd like to pick up at the very beginning of chapter four, where one Lord Peter Whimsy comes <laughs> you know, blows into the text in a rush of energy, and and hopefully it'll it'll energize our conversation as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, in the last episode, I talked about how much I love the opening paragraph of this book, mm -hmm. and the opening of this chapter is very similar. You know, it says, in spite of the horrors she had witnessed, which ought to have driven all sleep away from the eyelids of any self-respecting female. Harriet slept profoundly in her first floor bedroom with the bathroom balcony and view over the esplanade and came down to breakfast with a hearty appetite. A natural female. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, Harriet. Good for you. Yeah. And of course, she immediately uh, gets a copy of the Morning Star and reads her own interview. With photograph. Yes, with photograph, as the narrative adds in parenthetical. <laughs> and a familiar voice addresses her. Good morning, Sherlock. Where's the dressing gown? How many pipes of shag have you consumed? The hypodermic is on the dressing room table. Harriet very ungraciously says, how in the world, demanded Harriet, did you get here? Lord Peter's just like, by car. And I love, like, this is great dialogue, right? Like, this is that quick, funny dialogue that I love so much in Sayers. And Peter is in full... Like, not his silly ass persona, but just like in full flippant, he's going to roll with every punch mode. Yeah. It sort of reminds me of, is it Clouds of Witness, where he like bursts into song at one point over the joy of, of like, I forget if it was discovering a clue or, you know, or it's like that part in Five Red Herrings where it was like, you know, there was, as he's driving up to the Minnick and to see the, the scene of the crime, he's, it was like Lord Peter's cup was full of joy or something like it, it just, yes, it's, it's not quite silly ass, but it's very um, like a, a joyful, the hunt is afoot. Yeah. But it also, I feel the side of Peter has become really familiar especially as we've been digging deeper into the books. And it's like, this is Peter when he's being like at his most serious, when he doesn't want to let anyone know what's going on. Yes. You know, like the silly ass persona, he does that either to kind of hide things from people or to get things out of people or to put people at ease. And like, that's an act, but it's kind of different from this, where this is, he's just projecting so strongly that everything's fine and nothing can hurt me. Bye. And of course, doing it in front of the person who 
like basically holds his heart in her hands. Yeah. Like none of the barbed things that Harriet says seem to be getting under his skin. And he's he's just I wish I could remember at what point it is in Clouds of Witness. But you know, but there's that one point where the mask slips and he he tells Parker that he's like, Don't think that I'm not taking this seriously because you know, I'm facing the prospect of hanging either my brother or my sister. Don't let this attitude fool you. I'm, this is serious. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a point later in this book where he and Harriet sort of reflect back on this first meeting that they have, um, and I won't give it away yet. And and certainly in Gaudy Night, as they uh, unravel and unpack their relationship more, like we'll hear more from Peter about Almost this this feeling like, you know, because he got started on such a wrong foot with her back in Strong Poison that it's it's almost like they're trapped into playing these roles or it's almost like he has trapped himself into he is deadly serious every time he's asking her to marry him, but he has to play it off like a joke, right? Because because of everything, (laughs) because because of how they met, because of how he approached her at first, because of her trauma, like it's very like it makes me want to bundle them both up in you know robes and give them hot tea or something like I'm just like oh poor Peter and poor Harriet but it also creates this really lovely banter for us (laughs) yeah oh it's so great it leads to this wonderful line where Peter is invites himself to join Harriet at the breakfast table and she says uh where did you come from he says from London like a bird that hears the calls of its mate I didn't begin Harriet I didn't mean you I meant the corpse but still, talking of mates, will you marry me? Certainly not. <laughs> I thought not, but I felt I might as well ask the question. Did you say they had found the body? Like, yeah, this this is just like, I don't know, dialogic whiplash, right? Like, back and forth. <laughs> oh, man, it just, it just gets me in all the, all the heart places. Yeah, all the feels. I mean, you know, and Harriet's like, no, but really, how did you hear about it? And Peter tells her, Salcombe Hardy rang me up from the Morning Star, said, my Miss Vane had found a corpse. Did I know anything about it? I said, I knew nothing about it, and that Miss Vane was unhappily not mine yet. Um, and then like a few lines down, Peter says, I was rather hurt. Fancy having to ask the Morning Star where the pole star of one's own heaven has gone to. Oh, <laughs> Peter. Oh, yeah. you sweet boy. I know. I know. I just love that they're, I mean, it's... It's just such good banter and it's and he's like getting all the information about the corpse out of her at the same time. It, these two, these two. Oh, I could just go like I could just read off all this dialogue, which like I, that's probably not enjoyable for our listeners. But, uh, you know, where Peter is talking about Harriet calling the newspaper herself is like, does it not, pardon me, indicate a certain coarsening of the fibers? And Harriet says, obviously. My fibers at this moment resemble coconut matting. And Peter says, without even welcome written across them. It's just <laughs> so, oh, the dialogue at this scene is to die for. Yes. It's so good. I'm trying to think what you would call this like meet cute trip. I mean, it's not a meet cute anymore, I suppose, because they've met. But like, you know, it's not quite, it's not enemies to lovers. It's not really friends to lo- like, I you know, bo- both of which are romance tropes that I adore. Yes. But this like this spiky, not like adversarial, but without any enmity kind of. Yeah. It's like adversarial with a lot of sexual tension behind it. It's very, okay. 
So I imprinted on like Han Solo, Princess Leia at a very young age. And I feel like all of my favorite fictional, you know, romances or relationships kind of have a little bit of that, that dynamic going on of the two people who maybe like each other more than they want to admit, but that comes out in this like very combative way. But they're also the only two people who can keep up with each other, right? Yeah, it's a little like... Maybe this isn't a good comparison because it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but I want to refer to this as His Girl friday I don't know if I've ever seen that movie. Have you never seen it? It has, I mean, like, it has some things that would probably make you roll your eyes real hard because they didn't age super well. <laughs> you know, but like in the same vein as parts of a Philadelphia story not aging very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much in that same category. But, you know, but it's like that with like the fast dialogue and the these two people are the only ones keeping up with each other mm-hmm. very very quippy yeah it is very it has like that sort of Catherine Hepburn Spencer Tracy vibe oh I would have loved to have seen the two of them play these roles oh man <laughs> impossible fan casting like my number one choice for Lord Peter would be Leslie Howard yes speaking of extremely impossible castings he just has the look and the right yes yeah yes yeah like like very much for me the the, he has the right profile which is something that's hard to find (laughs) or stork like was it stork like yeah (laughs) yeah stork like is what they they he's called in in clouds of witness but i mean like lest our listeners think that we weren't thinking about sayers all the time during our hiatus i did um like get a wild hair to like make silhouette portraits of peter and harriet right and i definitely just straight up used leslie howard (laughs) as my (laughs) peter reference (laughs) like it's leslie howard with a monocle yeah yeah i i mean that's definitely i think always my the my internal mental picture of of peter like 100 percent when i'm reading the books is i i am picturing leslie howard with with a monocle (laughs) he just does that like staring down his nose thing so well yeah yeah Yeah. oh he would have been so good so good yes like it does feel very much like of the era like that type that type of dialogue Mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's you know just because i like a lot of movies from that era that i read it that way in my head like with that rhythm Mm -hmm. or i don't know but i i i love it i think it's so good it's definitely it's yes it's so good it's great I love this scene with my whole heart. Yeah. And it's, you know, like, it's so funny on the surface, but as you, as we, we get later in the book and we pick things apart and, like, there are kind of callbacks to this scene, we realize how much emotional stuff for both of them is happening under the surface. And it's just, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a scene that really rewards rereading. And maybe we'll come back to that when we when we get to that later scene. I love it. And like, again, Sayers' narrative efficiency, right? Where we're getting all of the the fraught emotion buried under the the flippancy, and we're getting all of these details about the mystery. Right? We're getting all the facts. Yeah. And I feel like this, this is a mystery where I think every time I reread the book, I'm always... I'm always like a little surprised by how many, not even twists and turns, but like how intricate it is. I think it's one of the more intricate mysteries. And maybe in my brain, I just, you know, one, I like, you know, I've, I, my memory is a sieve. 
So I just forget a lot of the <laughs> the extra things. And, and I, you know, it's always sort of coming off of, well, it's not as complicated as five red herrings or as like tortured, but it is a very intricate mystery. It relies on time of death and tides and whether or not, you know, anybody could have been coming or going along the shore. And it's just really impressive to me how Sayers, like she uses a lot of this dialogue and a lot of the scenes between Harriet and Peter to sort of recap these details and keep them fresh in your mind in a way that never feels like a knocking you over the head with plot or or info dumping like it's it's always just woven in really really seamlessly yeah well and like in this scene the most charming thing is like harriet kind of makes a map out of the breakfast things to show peter like where the body was and the the coastline and and it's oh i love it yeah and he, she picks up the pepper shaker first and he's like no 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 use salt <laughs> Like it'll be, we will, you know, less uh, irritating to the to the nasal tissues. <laughs> yeah, and you know, one of the things that makes this mystery so complex is that if it's a suicide, it's simple. If it's a murder, it seems impossible, right? It seems like the perfect crime because where did the murderer come from? Because there's only the one set of footprints going to the rock, and absolutely like no signs of any other person so if there was a murderer where did they come from how did they get there and how were they gone before harriet arrived because you know it's this big open stretch of beach there's no one in sight yeah like peter sort of helps her think through the things that she saw and did and you know there's this very sort of meticulous recounting where she's like well i know it was what is it like 1 p.m or 1 30 when i when I got to the stretch of beach, I definitely noticed that there was nobody around. You know, she said she didn't like pay a special attention to the rock or anything. So she couldn't swear to whether the body was there or not. But she's like, you know, I definitely know there was no one on the beach. Because like, I wanted to have a nice quiet picnic by myself. Um, relatable. She fell asleep for this amount of time, but she hurt, you know, she was startled awake. And she she looked at her watch again, then. So it's like the timing is very exact on sort of both ends of the stretch of time where they think, you know, someone could have come and and murdered the body. And they're like, that doesn't seem possible. Uh, But also, why would a man, why would someone go all the way out there to commit suicide? Why would a man with a beard have a razor? Why was he wearing gloves? Like, that theory doesn't add up. Yeah. The the idea of a suicide cut like being as deep as it's described like like I forget where in the book Sayers uses it but she uses the term butchery to describe how the neck looked like you know like it's obviously very gory and very it's a very deep cut which doesn't seem there's a like that which I personally can't imagine like applying that kind of strength to yourself yeah like especially when it wouldn't be necessary like so like that that's another thing that's just like that doesn't seem like human nature. Yeah. <laughs> and we also hear like once we find out who who the corpse is, like we hear from other people who knew him that I'm like how do we even approach like all the different stories? But like you know, one person says that he had mentioned in the past that if he was going to do away with himself, he would he would do it with poison. Mhm. With sleeping pills, just go to sleep. You know, and like I think the 
that same person also mentions that he was very squeamish and that he was, you know, a, like a little bit delicate about, you know, he, he didn't, he like, he was always afraid of getting a cut. And that was one of the reasons he had a beard. Multi- yeah, multiple people mentioned the the squeamishness and that he was kind of always afraid of getting hurt and so forth. So it's like, yeah, that just doesn't really square with why he would do this to himself in this particular way. Yeah. Yeah, but it does put, you know, like it's it's one of those things which I feel like a common trope in the amateur detective story is here is a case. It looks open and shut. You know, there's an easy answer. And it's up to the amateur detective to go, um, this sounds like something just feels off and I have to keep poking at it until, you know, and pulling at this thread until it unravels. There is an easy open and shut answer to this that's perfectly supported by the apparent evidence. Mm-hmm. Which the police really want to. Yeah, the police would love for it to be suicide. But Peter and Harriet are on the scene. But Peter and Harriet are here. Yeah, and they're just like, this just doesn't make sense, and this doesn't make sense. So they're, I mean, speaking of the victim. Oh, well, yes, we haven't said who the victim is. Yeah, we have not, we have not yet. I can't remember if we named the victim in our previous episode, because um, that was so long ago. A lifetime. A lifetime, truly. That was like pandemic version one, right? <laughs> when we were, when we recorded that. During the first year of the plague, <sighs> from March to june and now we're in the third year of the plague i read this amazing tweet that was like historians in the future will do their entire dissertations on like one day of 2020 it'll be like uh yes i specialize in you know october 2nd bleeding like a little bit into the morning of october 3rd oh gosh Uh, so true there was a oh there was a really funny tweet that i saw where it was someone who was like a a history professor and he was tweeting about you know, like he was just like I was encouraging my kids to keep a journal and my 10 year old looked at me and said dad I'm not interested in being a primary source <laughs> oh, that's really good I know. he's like no one appreciates me <laughs> <laughs> oh love it I love it um speaking of people no one appreciates um <laughs> Peter and Harriet's uh, intimate little breakfast is interrupted by Inspector Umpelty, another great sayer's name, who comes to tell them that they they know who the corpse is. They have figured it out. And so he says, you know, I don't know that you'll find anything very mysterious about this case, just a plain suicide, I fancy. And Peter says, we had regretfully come to that conclusion. And Umpelty says, though why he should have done it, I don't know. But you never can tell with these foreigners, can you? put a pin in that. Mm-hmm. Gonna definitely talk about the xenophobia in this book. And Uncle T says he's a Russian or something like that. Paul Alexis Goldschmidt, his name is, known as Paul Alexis, comes from this very hotel, as a matter of fact, one of the professional dancing partners in the lounge here. You know the sort. They don't seem to know much about him. So yeah, he was at the hotel for about a year as a dancer, age 22 or thereabouts, unmarried, lived in rented rooms, nothing nothing known against him. Naturalized British subject said to have escaped from Russia at the revolution. He must have been a kid of about nine, but we haven't found out yet who had charge of him. He was alone when he turned up here and his landlady doesn't ever seem to have heard of anybody belonging to him. So um, yeah, Umpulti's basically giving the rundown and saying, you know, there's no, no letters left among his belongings. 
Uh, we'll find out later that he kind of like burned everything, all, all his personal items that morning. And then the other problem is like they haven't recovered the body yet because the tide came in and washed it out. So he's like the coroner can't really give a ruling <laughs> until <laughs> until we have a body. We must produce the body. Yes. All signs kind of seem to point to him being a, this a very solitary person who doesn't belong to anybody. We come to find that that's not quite true. So we didn't talk about it. Like we touched very briefly on, you know, Harriet's visit to the hotel lounge after dinner, like the night before in the previous chapter. And the way she, you know, she observes the professional dancers who are there. They're doing an old fashioned waltz. And she notices that kind of everyone around is wearing old fashioned style clothes and doing old fashioned style flirting. And it's this, you know, this kind of weird scene where everyone is seems to be play acting and one of the things that Harriet observes is an older woman like significantly older um, asking a waiter for Mr. Alexis and being told that Mr. Alexis isn't there and you know like would she like to dance with one of the other gentlemen and she says no 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 I, I only want Mr. Alexis and Harriet noticed this woman because she had an air of what's described as almost bridal expectation you know like she's kind of beaming and glowing and gets more and more upset as the evening goes on yeah i mean harriet also like i i think we could say this is harriet's description because the scene is very much through her point of view um so it's bridal expectation but she also thinks of her as a predatory hag yes like that is a and you know it's it's part of it is because she's uh quote, pathetically made up, dressed in an exaggeration of the fashion, which it would have been difficult for a girl of 19 to carry off successfully. And yeah, she catches Harriet's attention because of her her look of radiant, almost bridal exaltation. But we're definitely meant to think of her as like, Harriet thinks of her with a lot of disgust, right? She says, or, or the narrative says, waiting for her gigolo diagnosed Harriet with a kind of pitiful disgust. Yeah, there's a lot of I mean, on the one hand, like it's a very, it's a very striking image. Again, with just a very few words, I think, you know, we're we're really able to picture what the scene looks like and what this woman looks like. It's also just very uncomfortable. I think that like, I, I think it's, I think it's very reasonable from what we know about Harriet and her background and her past with boys that she's, of course, going to be very observant of how, how the genders are interacting and how you know and and to kind of have a suspicion of of romance and of the the performance of romance which is sort of play acting here right i mean essentially you have i don't know if gigolo meant then what it does now but like essentially the dancers are a kind of sex worker right because they are they are paid to pretend <laughs> to pay attention to these um, these guests at the hotel. And I mean, Harriet, Harriet has a lot of judgment for the, I guess, for the kinds of people who would like fall for that kind of play acting. But she also really judges the dancers themselves and the, I, I guess, in a way that like, just makes me a bit uncomfortable, because I'm like, yeah, not everybody can write novels for a living, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that there are moments where, like Harriet sees that in herself, where she recognizes that, you know, people are kind of making their way in the world the way that the best that they can. And I think that, you know, like, I think that both those things are true, that there's some very uncomfortable, judgmental 
attitudes and also that you know they're called out not to an extent where I, that I would say like completely ameliorates them but yeah there is a scene later on where she talks to um the French dancer Antoine and a couple of the female dancers and it is like fairly sympathetic I think yeah and I think like there are a couple of moments later in the book you know where she's observing you know kind of their situation and feels like it's it feels a lot of sympathy and I think there are points later in the book where we see her you know feel sympathy even for you know you know this woman that she's thinking of as a predatory hag I think it's kind of interesting the way the perceptions you know shift when we're introduced to some of these figures as like actual people Mm, yeah that's a really good point and like that's something that I enjoy seeing characters do you know like oh yes I have seen this you know thing and it fits this stereotype and Mm -hmm. you know like I am prepared to write this off but then you know like there's you know something happens and you you interact with them as a person and you're just like oh wait there's more going on it's not exactly a trope but it's like that seeing that situation play out in fiction is something that i think is it always leads to interesting stuff yeah for sure when it happens to you in real life you just feel really uncomfortable and <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that is true yeah i think we I mean, it's certainly true that it's uncomfortable in real life. Um, you're right that Sayers does sort of make make use of the fact that I think we as the audience or as the reader are are naturally very primed to sympathize with or to believe in Harriet's judgment um, and her point of view in this book, right? Um, like we're primed to to sort of accept her her observations as fact and then very quickly as she gets to know these people and has to revise those judgments. Um, we do the same. Like, yeah, there's, there's a point in which Anton, you know, basically, so basically what she finds out both from the, the quote unquote predatory hag and the other dancers is that this woman, Mrs. Weldon, who's a, a widow, you know, comes about that she, her first marriage, she'd been married very young um, and was widowed, you know, sort of in middle age. And so she, uh, she and Paul Alexis had an attachment, you know, they were they were actually engaged. And depending on who you ask, you know, accord, according to Mrs. Weldon, they were perfectly happy and deeply in love. And she could not imagine that he would possibly commit suicide, given that, you know, they were about to begin their life together. And then of course, the other dancers are, are deeply skeptical and cynical of like, Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a good an attitude of like well good for him but also like it was business yes yeah and they're very they're very frank with Harriet and I think and at one point you know Antoine even calls Harriet out of um you know like I I know what you're thinking but like it's not I mean, he says this part in in French but you know basically like it's not easy being a gigolo it's like it's not easy what we do and I think and, and, you know, and he says, like, it's fine if you're thinking that it's very natural. <laughs> um, yeah, to think that I think I think Antoine also kind of like, pokes a little bit at being like, it's very British of you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very continental. Yeah. And you know, they're like, look, it's, it's a great temptation when somebody comes and says, you have only to marry me, and I will make you rich and comfortable for life. And we don't get Harriet's reaction to that. But like, certainly, I think we're supposed to hear an echo of uh, Peter and Harriet there, right? Yeah, very much so. Which 
like we don't see Harriet react to to that dialogue in that scene. But I, something that was striking me as we were as you something you said a minute ago is that we like we spend this book pretty deep in Harriet's point of view most of the time. We do switch to Peter a few times, but when we talked about Strong Poison, we talked about how in Strong Poison we're deep in Peter's, you know, mind, we're deep in his feelings, and that never happens again. You know, and like in the other books, we tend to be more distant from Peter, and we don't necessarily see things through Peter's eyes or with Peter's bias necessarily. Whereas when we're with Harriet, we are primed to see things her way pretty much all the time. Yes. Yeah. And like, like there's a very different approach to the way these characters are written. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, Harriet's point of view is always, it almost, it spills into the narrative around her in a way that Peter's doesn't, right? Like, I feel like there are ways in which, and again, my best example of this is, of course, in Gaudy Night. So in, in however much time we can, we can return to this. But I feel like even Harriet's vocabulary spills into the narrative around her. Like the, I think even when we're deep in Peter's mind and deep in Peter's point of view, there is often like beyond, you know, the door waltzed open or something like that. I I guess there's often still a way in which I feel like the narrative or the narrator itself is still kind of objective, kind of like not completely focalized through Peter's mind. And I feel like with Harriet, it's a lot closer. And I'm, I'm sure this is why so many people read Harriet as like the sayer stand in among other reasons which I don't like I've said before that I think that yes Sayers put a lot of herself into Harriet but she's not meant to be Sayers Mm -hmm. and I will fight anybody (laughs) yeah yeah but I think what's interesting is it's more like yeah I actually think it's much more interesting if you don't take that you know approach as a matter of fact because it, it just shows such control over craft on Sayers's part that she's she's able to like even when she's kind of doing a similar thing of like okay we're going to be sort of deeply embedded in one character's psyche and point of view she's able to do it in really different with like very different techniques and to different effects right like I just it's it's just so impressive I can't believe people don't study her more like in a more widespread manner (laughs) in academia yeah well, and like you think about like the way Harriet notices things is different from the way Peter notices things, you know, like the like all those details like go like they go all the way to the bone in terms of like the character development. And it's like I just I, I find it really impressive. And sometimes it just makes me want to lie on the floor and cry about it. <laughs> it's fine. It also really I mean, it just. This book makes use of the the split narrative or the split perspective, or I guess maybe the shared narrative really well, right? Because there are definitely the clues that Harriet discovers are clues that she's able to discover by dint of being a woman, by dint of being a novelist, by dint of being maybe having a bit of a reputation as a bohemian, right? Like she talks to Mrs. Weldon, kind of like woman to woman. She talks to the dancers and then the clues or the evidence that Peter discovers are also by dint of like his position in the world. You know, even when they're going over the deceased man's belongings, Peter notices very, very different things, right? And draws certain conclusions based off of like his knowledge of 
you know, what's in fashion for men? And, and, and we have that very funny part where Harriet's like, yeah, I've always made Robert Templeton, you know, her fictional detective, a, a bit of a, a sloppy dresser because she's like, I can't be bothered to, to like understand men's fashion. Um, and Peter's like, you know, this is, this is like your one flaw as a writer or, or something like the one flaw in his character. Like, I just find it upsetting. I find it upsetting. Yes, exactly. Uh, when I read your books and, you know, I love the mental image of like Peter immediately in Strong Poison rushing out and buying all her books ostensibly to like understand her, the her psyche, you know, as a suspect, but actually because he just uh, can't hum- help himself. But yeah, I mean, it's I, I feel like this book really you know, we've been teasing out this thread of like, what, who has access to what knowledge and the limitations on Peter, because of his very privileged position to to not be able to access certain classes of people or certain genders of people. And it's just, it's really nice to kind of see Harriet stepping into that, that role of like, not just sidekick, but kind of detective in her own right. You know, they do a lot of that delightful co-creation thing that we talked about in Strong Poison, e- even when they're at the police station looking at all of the, the the belongings, you know, they sort of go off on this tangent where they um, go back and forth about like, you know, obviously the corpse isn't a corpse, the body is not that of Paul Alexis, but of the Prime Minister of Ruritania, did not die of a cutthroat, but of an obscure poison, like it's just back and forth and back and forth. Um, and the sergeant who's like witnessing this it says he gaped in astonishment at the beginning of this exchange and now burst into a hearty guffaw. That's very good comic, ain't it? The stuff these writer fellows put into their books, uh, which is a bit of a like, mm, like they're their little detective novelist lady. But like, once again, it's it's just really delightful to see them kind of like, I don't know, play a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yeah, like, let's have a little fun, which there was something touching about it happening in strong poison because there is this it's not even like something's hovering over it it's like they're they're literally talking about it in in prison and for that kind of play to be happening again you know two years later in an entirely different circumstances you know in an investigation where you know it's not harriet's life on the line it's nice it is nice i i can't resist there's this one line where when they're leaving the hotel uh, to go to the police station, <laughs> I'm like, circling back a little bit, but you know, so they exit together, and of course, like all these photographers that are gathered around are like basically like paparazzi, like oh, you know, it's, it's Peter and Harriet like taking pictures, um, and Harriet says, "I feel," said Harriet maliciously, as if we had just been married at St George's, Hanover Square, <laughs> and Peter responds. No, you don't, retorted Whimsy. If we had, you would be trembling like a fluttered partridge. Being married to me is a tremendous experience. You've no idea. (laughs) I just love it. Love that, like, even when he's being silly, he's like, I have to defend my honor. Like, you you know, when one day when you finally give in to me. (laughs) It's a tremendous experience. You have no idea. (laughs) It's so good. So one thing that they do notice, or at least that Peter notices, at the police station is the razor that Harriet retrieved off of the corpse. And he doesn't say much there, but I think when they're, yeah, after they've left, you know, he says like, I have to, basically I need to go to town to run down um, some clues. And he says like, I searching for a middle-aged man of careless habits. Um, 
like basically basically he dangles he's like showing off a little bit for Harriet of like oh yes of course you know I need to go find this like exact kind of person and Harriet says I give in please explain so he says uh with the razor you will have observed that it is an instrument of excellent and expensive quality by a first class maker and that in addition to the name of the manufacturer it is engraved on the reverse side with the mystic word Endicott yes what is Endicott Endicott is or was one of the most exclusive hairdressers in the West End. So fearfully exclusive and grand that he won't even call himself a hairdresser in the snobbish modern way, but prefers to be known by the old world epithet of barber. And then Peter goes on to say, consider the anomaly of the man who buys his razor from Endicott's and yet wears the regrettable shoes and mass production millinery found on the corpse. Mind you, it is not a question of expense exactly. The shoes are handmade, which merely proves that a dancer has to take care of his feet. But could a man who is shaved by Endicott possibly order, deliberately order, shoes of that color and shape? A thing imagination boggles at. And that's where Harriet says, like, you know, I don't never bother to learn the subtle rules and regulations of male clothing. But I feel like this really this really comes back to our conversation about uh, the Montague egg story and kind of taste. And how, you know, we talked then about how Peter, like that could never have been a Lord Peter short story, right? Because Peter would have just immediately (laughs) engaged the professor in conversations about Greek and like found him out immediately. But here it's like, yeah, we have these threads sort of coalescing about kind of the difference in taste versus style and taste as the thing that gives away someone's sort of class position. Right. So Peter's saying, like, it's not like money doesn't necessarily buy you taste, uh, as evidenced by Paul Alexis's shoes, which I guess are, you know, were very, very vulgar. And even this Mr. Endicott, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter if you're rich or titled or rich and titled. Like, if you're not old, old aristocracy, he wouldn't shave you. And so, like, the razor itself almost becomes. It's like the metonym for that attitude, right? Where it's like, so then there's like a long, long chapter where Peter goes and talks to Mr. Endicott and Endicott can still remember that batch of razors. He's like, oh yes, with the ivory handle, let's see, you know, we only produced like three dozen of them and this one went to Sir so-and-so and this one went to Colonel, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, so, so there's this way in which like the novel is really interested in the difference between a mass-produced object, right? The regrettable shoes and mass-production millinery found on the corpse. And then the the object that is like valuable because it's rare. Um, and that's valuable because somebody who has a certain kind of like reputation of being very discerning and very exacting has deemed like this is the correct thing to have. You know, there's no reason Endicott couldn't have produced like the, the razor itself is not, you know, it's not, he's not like hand making it that it is, it is an object that, you know, was produced by a manufacturer, a first class maker, but you have to assume like that person <laughs> made more than three dozen. But the fact that like the Endicott name gets attached to it is what makes it the mystic object. Yeah, it's the status symbol. It is absolutely a status symbol. And it's a status symbol by people who don't need status symbols, right? Which makes it like even more, even more exciting, I suppose, because like, just, I don't know, I'm I'm like, again, oh, so hard to talk about without talking about Gaudy Knight. I think it, it just it, it really goes to this idea that like the middle class 
or this emerging bourgeoisie um, and an emerging sort of nouveau riche during this time period, like they have to perform their taste, right? I think in a way, and and this book is so interested in performance, like with the dancers and the the performance of a kind of old fashioned manner um, and dress at the hotel and the sort of class and taste performance that we see in the Monty Egg story and here. And then like kind of having this very, I think almost conservative point of view that, you know, but like real taste, the taste of the aristocracy, like is the thing that cannot ever be faked. And again, like, no, pick up this thread in Gaudy Night. Um, But like, you know, so of course, like Peter is the person who knows what the mystic word Endicott signifies, right? And then is able to go and like talk to Mr. Endicott and and sort of get all of the information out of him about like where these different razors went to. Yeah, it's just like, it's such a long, this one particular clue gets like so much narrative weight placed on it. And I think, you know, we'll see in Murder Must Advertise as well. Like I, I think Sayers is really in, in sort of this like middle set of novels thinking a lot about, taste and class and what what things about class can be replicated and what things cannot yeah I just find it very interesting that's all (laughs) yeah like it's fascinating and I'm I don't have anything to contribute no (laughs) I love I love hearing you talk about it I'm just like I don't have additional thoughts no I mean this is like I'm like I just I feel like I always end up in a place where I'm like, this is very interesting. I'm not entirely sure what to do with it. Um, (laughs) Which was like, basically what my dissertation chapter was about is like the, I I think there's a a certain aspect of like gatekeeping as well that we'll definitely talk about when we get to Gaudy Night. But yeah, just this, like a suspicion. I feel like the novels betray a certain suspicion of things that are too easily replicated. And they are always interested also in looking for things that that cannot be faked or that cannot be taken up by people who are faking identities. And I think there's a lot of that has to do with like sort of the the rise in like mass produced objects that was kind of happening post World War One and be like in the interwar period where things, you know, goods get cheaper, but not necessarily better made. And we know from Sayers's nonfiction writing that she's, she's like very critical of that, right? Like, okay, sure, you can go out and buy a dress now for for not very much, but it's it's made to fall apart. And to her, that was creating objects just for the sake of selling them for like mass consumption or creating jobs just to keep people occupied was to her kind of going against that belief that like, no, everybody has work that like everybody deserves work that is dignified and everybody has something to do that is like theirs specifically to do. So I think anything that like kind of goes away from specificity and and dignity, she definitely treated with great suspicion. But also, yeah, it gets wrapped up in in a sort of like strange fetishization of of like aristocracy and nobility so uh, more to come more to come on that and it will be fascinating and that's something we'll talk about so much when we get to To gaudy Gaudy night Night. subtitle of our podcast yeah i'll just do like four episodes about two pages and gaudy night when we get there it's gonna be great thank you
Thank you for for indulging me. <laughs> I am looking forward to it. I am always interested in it. Oh, because you. yeah, I mean, like I feel like we both do that a lot. Where we're just like, I had these thoughts. I don't know what to do with them. And you know, that's kind of part of why we're here is to talk through some of those things and unravel some of those threads. And we don't always end up somewhere with a, a concrete conclusion, but it's always fun along the way. Yes, we end up with a heap of unraveled yarn. <laughs> But yes, this podcast, a repository. The true treasure was the friends we made along the way. Yes, yes. A repository for our thoughts. The other subtitle of our podcast. Okay, but before I went off on that long, long theoretical tangent, (laughs) uh, in which I tried very hard not to say the names Pierre Bourdieu or Walter Benjamin, and look, I just did it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The... So yeah, so Peter goes off on this long, long rabbit trail about the razor. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we get to meet the delightful Mr. Endicott. And we also uh, get to meet the, is it a colonel that, you know, he figures out the razor belongs to? I'm flipping. And like, he certainly has the colonel vibe, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a very specific vibe. Yes. Um, Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Peter, um, after a chapter of speaking with Mr. Endicott, uh, where we get the basically the family tree of all of these razors in a certain lot. You know, they figure out that most likely the one that Peter's interested in went to a Colonel Belfridge. Also, a very, very funny chapter where Belfridge keeps trying to go off on these different tangents. Actually, first of all, he's like very, very indignant that, you know, his lordship is poking his nose in other people's business and asking them about uh you know their their personal belongings and this is properly the business of the police damn it sir uh and then peter peter just like slips into the conversation that oh well yes you know but i got a got a taste of detecting when i was doing intelligence work during the war and, and the colonel's entire demeanor like having found out that peter served just changes you know he now wants to to show Peter a, a litter of his puppies. Um, <laughs> like, we are now war buddies. Let's... We are now, yes, we are now BFFs forever. So then it's like, yeah, Peter is sort of continually trying to keep keep the colonel on task to talk about the razor. Uh, and he finally finds out that because the colonel was really hard on his razors, he was like, ah, yeah, it was, it was no good. You know, it always lost the edge, blah, blah, blah. So I uh, gave him to my gardener, which poor Mr. Endicott and his like, you know, refusal to shave anybody without a certain pedigree, like, just ends up in the hands of the gardener. And the gardener tells him, let's see. So he gave it on to, I think, his brother-in-law, who is a a barber, in a town that's not far from Wilbercombe, like another coastal town. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and then, so Peter goes and visits the brother-in-law, Mr. Merriweather, he says, you know, yes, we. I received the razors in 1927. They're good razors, though badly treated. Um, he's like, you know, here's one of the ones of the matching set. I don't have the other one anymore. And Meriwether says, I sold that razor only a few weeks ago to one of those tramping fellows that came here looking for a job. So basically like an itinerant barber who came and Mr. Meriwether was sort of like, eh, I could tell right away that he wasn't very good at cutting hair. But the man asked if I would sell him a razor. So there you have it. 
And Peter says, you know, what is he like? Oh, a little rat of a fellow, sandy haired, too smooth in his manners by half. Not so tall as your lordship, he wasn't. But if I remember correctly, he was a bit, not deformed, but what I might call crooked. He might have had one shoulder a trifle higher than the other. Nothing very noticeable, but he gave me that impression. Very well kept hands, uh, spoke like a gentleman, very refined and quiet. The man's name was Bright. And so Peter is sort of, the, the gears are definitely turning, right? Where he's like, okay, so how did... How did this razor, which we have now identified as the murder weapon, um, because of like a small hairline crack in the handle, how did it get from this person bright to Paul Alexis? And also, this seems like a very shady story. <laughs> mm, Mr. Bright, eh? So it's interesting because like he, you know, he and Harriet are also kind of running down like all the people that she she met on the road when she was like after she discovered the corpse because they were like well if there was a murderer like he either left by sea or he left by the road and if he was on the road it's quite possible that you might have run into him or he might have been trying to keep an eye on you so like you know he he asks her about that man Perkins who walked quite a ways with her like you know was he does he fit this description and she's like well I don't think so. You know, like maybe he had, he was, had a crooked leg, but he, he was limping because he said he had a blister, which could be a really good cover story. So, so yeah. So all of a sudden they have this person bright, Mr. Bright to account for. This long elaborate tracking down of the razor kind of leads to this unsatisfactory dead end. Mm -hmm. Also, okay. So some other things that come up kind of in these early few chapters of the book, the police find out that at one point, like, I guess a couple weeks before he died, Paul Alexis had taken all of his money out of the bank. So at first, that's kind of a, you know, like, one tick in not in favor of the the suicide theory, right of like, Okay, it seems like maybe he was getting ready to run off and and everybody makes like poor Mrs. Weldon, everybody makes a lot of jokes about how like, ah, the poor fellow couldn't face the prospect of marrying her. So he cut his own throat or he was getting ready to run away. But that's sort of also like a detail that comes up early on. And later we'll find out what he did with his money, but not quite yet. Shall we close by talking about like right before Peter leaves Wilvercombe to go chase the razor? His last request of Harriet. Oh, yes. Yes, we should absolutely. I feel like we can start our episode with um, raptures and I guess end end with raptures as well about these two. Just want to mush their faces together and make them kiss. <laughs> um, I guess it's actually quite early. It's in chapter, the end of chapter four. Yeah. Yeah, because Peter, you know, Peter goes off to track down the Indicott Razor and um, the next chapter is actually uh, while he's gone, Harriet ends up, you know, meeting Mrs. Weldon. Mrs. Weldon tells her about the engagement with Alexis and, you know, all that information comes out before we go back to Peter to find out what he's learning about the razor. But before Peter leaves, let's see. Oh, yes, here it is. So he tells, you know, Harriet, you know, like what he's leaving to do and um, Harriet says that she'll have to get a decent frock if there's such a thing in Wilvercombe so you know so that she can spend more time at the hotel you know talk to the dancers in the lounge that kind of thing and Peter says we'll get a wine colored one then I've always wanted to see you in wine color it suits people with honey colored skin what an ugly word skin is it's like Peter stay focused yeah 
I think well, and then he's like, you know, blossoms of the honey sweet and honey colored menufar. I always have a quotation for everything. It saves original thinking. Blast the man, said Harriet, left abruptly alone in the blue plush lounge. So like you just you get this image of him just like t- almost talking to himself as he's like wandering off. Then she suddenly ran out down the steps and leapt upon the Daimler's running board. Port or sherry, she demanded. What? said Whimsy, taken aback. The frock. Port or sherry? Claret, said Whimsy. Chateau Margot, 1893 or thereabouts. Not particular to a year or two. Um, these, <laughs> these two. I just, uh... I, I love also that it get, the scene gets sort of set up where, you know, they're leaving the police station. Peter's like pulling the car around. Uh, and, you know, he's like, well, I got it. I got, you know, I'm sorry that, uh, like, I shan't you know, I'm, I'm sorry that I need to go to town um, to to find this clue. And, and the narrative's like, Harriet, who had been preparing to say she had work to do and could not waste time rubbernecking around Wilvercombe with Lord Peter, <laughs> experienced an unreasonable feeling of having been cheated. And I just, like, it's so relatable, right? That whole, that she was, yeah, she was getting ready to sort of be, like, too cool for, for him. And then he's like, well, I, sorry, I gotta be off. <laughs> Oh, like no! I was the one who was supposed to tell you. Right, I I reject you. That is how this works. And then yeah, this like where he's just very offhandedly like, I've always wanted to see you in wine color, and she's like trying to be really annoyed by it, but then also you know is like, what color wine color? (laughs) And I love how he like his his immediate answer, (laughs) just Claret, the specific one from this year. (laughs) But I'm not picky within a year or two. So, okay. Also, another fan fiction that someone please write and send to us is, like, Peter having... Like, you could tell this is, like, a very well-developed fantasy of his, right? You know, and like, you remember in Strong Poison, he talked about how, oh, she, you know, she should wear garnets and, and old rings and, mm-hmm. you know, like, he's put thought into... Like, oh, yes, these are the these are the the nice things that she deserves and that would suit her. And that I, I wish she would let me give to her. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Karis, and you know what it also reminds me of? What? The end of Unnatural Death when he takes Anne Dorland out for a meal. And, oh, yeah. And he's like, you know, you're basically like you're, you know, you're not, I forget what he says she isn't. You're not like champagne and... You know, like basically, you're not lightweight, right? You are, you're like this well developed, full bodied red wine, and one day you're going to find the man who appreciates you. Speaking of taste and flavor, <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I feel like this is, I mean, like maybe not a deliberate callback, but I think there's definitely um, the 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 association of Harriet with like the not not expected thing, right? Like he's not like, oh, I'm going to shower her with diamonds. He's like, mm, garnets and rubies and like wine color like the specificity where he's thinking about what would suit her and not just like what is the thing that you give to women i i feel like is a bit of a callback there peter is the man with discerning taste discerning that he wants this particular woman (laughs) and you know like it shows how good he is at reading people you know that he kind of identifies like this is like with ann dorlin you know like he says like i'm going to like design a meal for you Mm mm-hmm and you know, she's like, I have, I like, I have assessed you, and let me build this experience that's tailored to you, and let, like, let me show you these things that you don't even realize you'll like. Yeah, and yeah, and like we we see him doing that with Harriet a little bit, where he's like, I want to open this world of possibilities to you. 
I have put some thought into it. <laughs> Please let me. Please let me show you the pleasures of life. The, the wonderful experience of being married to me. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, it strikes me that like, that Sayers is like threading a really fine needle there, right? Because there's, there's a way in which, and you know, you and I have both seen media properties where this tips the wrong way. It becomes very Pygmalion of like the wealthy man sort of like molding a woman's taste or saying like, oh, you know, I'm going to make you over. Let me turn you into the thing that I want. Yes. Versus, like you said, the that he sort of made a study of their natures and their preferences and saying like, okay, you might not be aware that these things exist, but I, I think this is what you're going to like. And let me, let me open that world up to you. Let me show that to you. But it's, it's not treating the woman like a doll, right? It's, it's saying like, oh, you actually, you have like sort of unconventional tastes. So let's explore that. Yeah, it just, I'm like, oh, it's so easily could have tipped in like the wrong direction. Well, and it's that, that thing that changing someone to suit yourself is bad is yeah it's bad it's never gonna go well and like it just shows that what you actually care about is yourself and not them right but peter's goal is to be like i want to make you even more yourself i want you to be you like with with confidence and with nice things and yeah i just like like i just want you to be ever more yourself yeah and that's the thing that harriet I think isn't able to see yet, right? Like that she's so she's so afraid that because he is such a strong personality that giving in to her attraction to him would mean once again being overpowered by like a forceful personality and having to to make herself smaller the way that she did with Philip Boys. She can't quite see yet. Po- probably possibly potentially because Peter you know has gone about everything completely backwards. But like, I think these moments are very important in their relationship where it's about him recognizing her personhood and her personality and saying, these are the things I like about you. And and these are the things that I like, I never want you to change about yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I know like a lot of people... You know, I think especially with YA novels these days, there's the critique of like the insta love, uh, love at first sight trope. And I'm like, oh, well, this series is really the antidote to that. I mean, I guess Peter falls in love at first sight, but the uh, the amount of time it takes these two to, to get their acts together and get together. <laughs> so many books, so many years, but it's so enjoyable along the way. Yes. Yeah. So next time, I guess we will see Harriet in the wine colored frock and yes, see some more banter between the two of them and maybe talk more about the mystery. Who knows? Maybe. And (laughs) uh, we'll meet my namesake character. Yes, that's right. We'll meet the, the Karis cameo. Yes. Though not the Karis you were actually named after, right? (laughs) No, I was named after another Karis who was just named after the Greek word. Yeah, I uh, knew very little about the Karis that uh, the na- that is actually the name is borrowed from in this book until recently. Nice. But yeah, it is like when you have a rare name and you see it in print, you're just like, look at that. Look, look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's it's certainly never been a popular name. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, we hope that 
You are as thrilled to be back in Hafez Carcass as we are. We promise we won't just disappear again. Please join us next time for for more about our two favorite sleuths and this complicated mystery that's about to get a lot more convoluted. Oh, yeah. That's going to be so hard to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. Our website, where you can find transcripts for each episode, as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast, is asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll tell all of your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. See you next time for more Talking Piffle.